This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon. I'm Fiona Broom coming to you from Gunai Kurnai country in Gippsland today. Ahead on the country hour, conflict in the Red Sea region is having an impact on agricultural imports and exports. We'll bring you more ahead on the show and more drama at the VFF. A letter from VFF commodity group leaders calling for better communication is just the latest challenge to the organisation's leadership. Also ahead... We're a funny mob, us guys that show cows, and, <laughs> and we're, you know, essentially 90% of them are, are, are just regular dairy farmers that aren't good at golf. So this is their hobby. We'll find out why genomics and breeding are getting more attention in the dairy world. But do you have a hobby outside of farming or do your passions lie within your industry? Lots of you are really passionate about what you do. Is your work your hobby? Farming can be all-consuming, so do you have an off-farm activity that you turn to to switch off? You can let me know on the text line 0467 842 722 is the number there, or you can share your thoughts on any of our stories today. Love to hear from you. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, the Victorian Farmers Federation's commodity group presidents have united to call on the organisation's leadership to engage more with members. A letter published uh, includes signatories include the UDV president, Bernie Free, the Grains Group president, Craig Henderson, Livestock Group president, Scott Young, Egg Group president, Tony Neshi, and Pig Group president, David Wright. It's just the latest pushback against VFF President Emma Germano after last year's legal challenge from former Grains Group presidents that sought to have her removed from the position. Bernie Free says members aren't happy with the way the organisation is being run. We've decided to write the letter to explain to members the lack of communication between the presidents of commodities and the board of the VFF, the lack of communication between the board and the commodity councils and the members at large. Tell me more about what you say is that lack of communication. The lack of communication on the um, constitution that's being changed, the lack of acknowledgement of people not being happy with the way the consultation happened and the contents of the new constitution of stripping away the... uh, power of members and making the the board the powerful part of the organisation when members are the integral part of the organisation that makes the organisation work. We're supposed to be listening to members and that communication is not listened to and not asked for. And are you talking specifically about lack of communication from the Chief Executive and the the President, Emma Germano? Uh, The board and the Chief Executive Officer, yes. What's changed and how was it done in the past? In the past, the policy councillors communicated what the members wanted and then the uh, policy council took that further up through through the VFF and um, nowadays it just gets 
put in the too hard basket or there's no communication back on what the decisions are made. And with the constitution, there was no feedback as to why they weren't going to change what the members wanted and there was no real explanation as to um, why they wanted the new constitution the way it is. When Miss Germano came to uh, the meeting at Tarang, there was no document of the new constitution. There was no real explanation about that. It was talking about other stuff, and yet the constitution was the headline act for that roadshow. So if, if members and policy councillors and uh, policy group presidents aren't having input into decision-making and the direction of the organisation... Who is then making those decisions and, and setting that direction? Well, the board and the, um, the people at the top of the organisation are, are making those decisions as to what we do advocate for and what we don't advocate for. And where are they? What's informing that? Where are they getting their, their information from? Well, they're not getting it from, my understanding is they're not getting it from the other commodities and they're certainly not asking... Um, the dairy commodity, and when you do ask them to do anything, it's um, we haven't got staff to do that. I wanted to ask about that as well because that's another element of your letter. You're saying that there's a lack of commodity policy work being done because of a lack of staff? Yes, that's true. There was a pig inquiry that closed a few days ago. Um, I was given a communique from the VFF and I was told that it wasn't to go out to members. And I said, well, isn't this what you're asking members to do? You want them to participate in this inquiry and, and express their views, and yet I can't send it out to um, to members. What's the the board's relationship with the state government? I don't know because they don't. They won't tell me. They won't. Uh, they're not keen for me to engage. I was given a uh, a phone call and an email before Christmas that I was to be very careful about the um, animal welfare legislation and um, not to say anything public on it and until um, the VFF had um, worked out what their position is. Well, they should have already worked out their position way before I even became um, president uh, president of, of the UDV. They knew basically what was in the legislation and they only had one person on that committee that was looking at that legislation, which was irresponsible of the VFF to do that. And when Mark Billing left the organisation and started his own organisation, my understanding is that he got a foot in the door on that animal welfare legislation and got some sort of input. So clearly the VFF wasn't um, advocating for farmers. As you mentioned there, Mark Billing and and most of the UDV policy councillors last year left the UDV, left the VFF and formed their own organisation. You didn't do that. You stayed with UDV and, and VFF. Do you feel like perhaps you, you should have just left? Um, no, because I have the view that um, there is nothing wrong with the organisation. The organisation needs some tweaking and some adjusting for modern times, but there is an issue with communication and the way the organisation functions. And... To make those changes, you have to do it from within the organisation. If you're going to leave the organisation, you lose all of the ability to have any influence on those changes. Last year, Grains Group members, including Andrew Wiedemann, led a a legal challenge essentially to try and sack 
Emma Germano from the, the presidency of the VFF. Now, that failed. Uh, so if you want Emma Germano gone, will that have to wait until the next uh, election for president? No. How can you bring it about earlier? The, the judge in that case told, told members how that can happen. And at the end of the day, if the board believes that they're so, they're so right in what they're doing and members believe it, they would have the courage to um, hold an extraordinary general meeting and um, put their positions up for election again. Would you like to see the entire board gone? There are issues with, with members on the board, but at the end of the day, you need to um, understand the constitution and all of those things, and I'm not sure whether the whole board can go at once, but at the end of the day, the leader of that board is the one that is agreeing to the direction and saying the direction, saying we're not happy with the direction of the board, saying in principle, I suppose, you could read that into what I've what I've said. And you clearly want Emma Germano gone. Well, Emma Germano needs to um, listen to what members are wanting and asking and follow the constitution. This long-running dispute between, uh, well, largely between Emma Germano and uh, leading VFF members, what sort of damage has it done to the the reputation of the organisation, I suppose, the way it's viewed by government and and also by farmers? Well, the, by farmers, I think it's it's... It, it has done a lot of reputational damage. With the ministers, I'm not sure, but um, while you're fighting amongst yourselves, the government can do what they like. What's the next step for, for both you and your co-signatories to this letter? Well, we'll see what happens from this letter and we will. I'm assuming that we will continue to push for change within the VFF and get better communication back to commodity presidents and commodity policy councils and membership. Bernie Free there, President of United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, speaking with Angus Verley. And we invited Emma Germano on the show today, but she declined that invitation. It is a quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour, rural news and weather ahead at 12.30. Let's turn now to shipping. Tensions in the Red Sea could force Australia's agricultural sector to pay more for vital imports and exports. The Red Sea connects the Indian Ocean with the Mediterranean Sea via the Suez Canal. And since November, Yemen's Houthi militant group has been targeting ships headed to Israel Shipping companies wanting to avoid the area now face a 9- to 15-day detour around Africa. Rabobank Research General Manager Stefan Vogel says this may increase the cost of bringing in things like fertiliser and chemical, as well as shipping out commodities such as grain and beef. The shipping companies, be it for containers or be it for the bulk commodity handlers like uh, those that ship the wheat and and, uh, the canola, they have to take a pretty tough decision these days thinking I still can go through the canal and I risk that I might get attacked or I go around Africa, which easily adds seven days depending on where you go, sometimes 15 days or so to the travel route, makes your cost much more expensive. Within the last six weeks, it has doubled, but not as dramatic as they did three years ago, and we're not expecting them right now to go to those levels. And how does that impact us here in Australia? 
So on the one side, it impacts us for everything we're importing. We're clearly importing fertilizers. We're importing a lot of plant chemicals, uh, machinery parts. But even everyday consumers uh, handle a lot of products in their hands that uh, come from abroad or where at least many of the parts come from, from abroad and have to be shipped in. So those higher costs will have to be borne by those who consume the goods. What about imported inputs like fertilizer? Not every fertilizer is immediately also impacted by that rerouting. So yes, the higher cost for freight, they will have to cover. But it doesn't immediately mean that everything is also shipped in a different route because a lot of our fertilizers actually come from Africa or from the Middle East and therefore don't even have to go through the canal. And which crops that we export could be affected? It's bad news for those who ship canola because the canola very often goes to the European Union from Australia, is used there in the biodiesel market, and obviously the shortest route to Europe from over here is through the canal. So those shippers will have to think about going around Africa or taking the risk, and with that will probably be a little bit more at a disadvantage compared to our competitors. And our competitors are sitting in Ukraine, they're sitting over in Canada, and when they go to Europe with the canola, they have to pay the higher freight rates, but they don't have the extra time. Are there any potential upsides for the nation's crop exports? For thinking wheat, it actually might be good for us. Barley, it might actually be good for us. And why is that? Well, a lot of the wheat, a lot of the barley that we're exporting out of Australia hits markets in uh, Asia, in the Middle East, in eastern parts of Africa. All those destination markets don't require us to go through the canal. But all of our competitors actually have to, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the European Union, even those on the east coast of the United States have to go through the canal. And if they have to reroute around Africa and it takes them 10, 15 days more, it's going to be more expensive for them, puts us in a bit of a better spot. Lastly, we may have to think about another product, and that is all around the containerized exports of maybe fresh produce, uh, maybe meat the situation in the Red Sea seems to get worse every day and it's very hard to see how it might actually be resolved. We have to probably plan for extended periods of those trade issues and uh, reroutings and high freight costs. The beef industry may have to think about uh, when they export if there is a con consistent flow of containers available or if we might see a situation like three years ago, two years ago, when the shippers didn't have enough empty boxes here in Australia and rather containers either very quickly went back to China without taking a lot of goods on board and going to different uh, destinations first or uh, they just didn't come to us at all happily and rather stayed somewhere else. That's Rabobank Research General Manager Stefan Vogel speaking there with Brandon Long about shipping issues in the Red Sea. A text come in on the text line from Joe saying, I'm sure the VFF board could have done a better job, but the ones agitating for change in the proposed alternative haven't got a great track record either. Thanks for that text there, Joe. And you can share your thoughts with me on any stories on the show today, 0467-842-722. Well, 40% of Australia's 60,000 hectares of almond trees are more than 20 years old. And that means a lot of growers will now be thinking about redeveloping their orchards over the next five to 10 years. 
In Australia, this usually means bulldozing the trees and burning them, but that can lead to poor air quality for surrounding residents uh, as well as carbon emissions. Merbean almond grower Neil Bennett has been trialling wood chipping and mulching his trees and he told Elsie Kennedy he's been seeing some good results. Two years ago, I made a radical decision to um, recycle the orchard. So we pulled the trees out, put them through a horizontal grinder, respread the chips out um, on the on the soil, and then replanted over the top of it. So the trees are in their second year, and it's just about seeing, starting to look and see what the results are. If there's any deficits, if it's or detriments to this, which the this um, process which they've been doing in the the USA for a couple of years now. So what is the alternative to this? What do people normally do when their almond trees get too old? Well it's the same as anything whether it's vines whether it's citrus or or almond trees you pull it out push it up and burn it and then that obviously goes up into the into the uh, atmosphere and you're releasing all the nasties so by with California they played around with it because it was actually mandated over there that they couldn't burn anymore so they needed to come up with some way of getting rid of um, the old orchards. And so there's no law against doing that in Australia but you've chosen not to. Why did you decide not to do that? Uh, From the studies I saw from the states there was things like the, the benefits was it increased your organic matter in the soil, it increased your carbon levels in the soil, water holding capacity, there seemed to be an improvement in yield when we replant the crop we got one chance in 25 30 years with a blank canvas this is the the, probably the ideal time to to do it and if we can get more organic matter in there and better water holding capacity into some of our soils it's it's a bonus because then ultimately it takes the pressure off water wise and irrigation wise and what have you found has that increased your water efficiency it's still early days i've got that's why we've got the scientific trial going on to actually back up to see whether my theories are believable or just not believable um so it's a bit early to to say as yet but the signs are looking positive that the 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 soil structure is is starting to improve and with that will come the um, water holding capacity University of California farm advisor Brent Holtz says turning almond orchards into wood chips at the end of their life is standard practice in the United States. He says in California, the wood chips used to be burnt to produce electricity, but he developed a technique to use them as mulch. Since 2015, our electrical industries have been mandated to produce more solar and wind power, and burning wood chips to generate electricity is like burning coal. And they've fallen out of favor so we needed an alternative to our orchard removal because we couldn't burn in California because our air quality restrictions and so um, that's kind of when the industry turned to me when the cogeneration plants started shutting down in California to look for an alternative to uh, cogeneration burning or orchard burning in the field. Brent says the practice is ideally suited to Australian conditions. The Australian soils tend to be very sandy than ours and low in nutrient compared to ours. And so the Australians, I found, are very interested in anything that builds soil organic matter, soil organic fertility, and we've also seen this process increase the soil water holding capacity. And, of course, uh, water holding capacity is very important for us both in California and in Australia. What have you found in terms of, what are some of the numbers here? How much water can we save? 
we've we've almost doubled the water holding capacity with this whole orchard recycling by adding all this organic matter to our soils and i think and we've also seen a yield benefit in our orchards with whole orchard recycling and what kind of yield improvement can you get from this technique well um i've been measuring uh increase in yield um for 15 years in the orchard in California, and it's not a very dramatic increase at any one year, but um, I've always had a slight increase in yield in my grind treatment compared to my burn treatment, and but I accumulate that yield over a 15-year period, and I've I've seen a, a 2,800 kilogram per hectare increase in yield with the grind treatment over the burn. And um, if the almond prices hadn't been going down, that would almost pay for the expense of, do, of doing this. But I, I think the longer these trials go, um, we're going to continue to see the benefit of this whole orchard recycling. And speaking of expense, how much could a farmer expect to need to pay to grind down an acre of, of almond trees? Yeah. Well, I, I hate to say, you know, it looks like because this was the first attempt in Australia, I think the the expenses were very high, maybe eight thousand Australian dollars per hectare or something like that. But I think in in California where we're about fifteen hundred U.S. dollars per per acre, and but we've had a lot more experience with efficiencies, and I I think we're going to see that eight thousand price probably go down to you know two thousand. Australian dollars per hectare or something like that, which I, I think is reasonable. Would you suggest the Australian government should have some kind of other incentives or rules to encourage farmers to do something like this? Yes, I, I was just thinking about this. You know, one of the main... We've had incentives in California. Um, the Air Quality Board, uh, San Joaquin Air Pollution Control District, has given growers money to do whole orchard recycling because we, because it, we get much worse air quality than you have but I think um, ultimately we're looking at can growers receive some sort of carbon credit for adding carbon to the soil for increasing carbon sequestration uh, for slowing global warming um, you know is, is slowing climate change by adding organic matter to our soils so I think that's the big crest uh, that we're all hoping to achieve sometimes is, is that can we can get um, carbon credits um, for putting carbon in our soils, and that should be the goal of all of agriculture. That's University of California farm advisor Brent Holtz ending that report by Elsie Kennedy. And I really find it interesting, all of the research uh, that can be shared between Victoria and, and California, so many similarities between our climates and weather and the industries um, that we work in. And uh, uh, Brent Holtz mentioned there um, 1500 US dollars an acre. Breaking that down, that is about 5000 Australian dollars per hectare. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian... Another text coming in regarding the VFF leadership troubles with commodity group leaders calling for more engagement between the board and members. Uh, no name on this text. It says, I voted for Emma Germano and still support her. It's about time all these old dinosaurs doing all the whinging retired. They're doing more damage to our reputation than Emma could ever do. Ahead on the show, you're going to hear from uh, a, a cow, a, a dairy cow breeder who is extremely passionate about what he does. 
Um, and one of those lucky people whose passion for his work crosses over into his hobbies. Do you have a hobby off farm or on farm that you want to share? Text line is open zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. Ahead on the show, we also will have the weather coming up. We're going to go to rural news a little bit early today. We've got Emma Field with rural news. G'day, Emma. G'day, Fiona. A live export ship has been forced to turn around and head back to Australia amid terrorism threats in the Red Sea. The MV Bahaja left Western Australia bound for Jordan on January the 5th, carrying thousands of sheep and cattle. The journey stalled after Iran-backed Houthi rebels stepped up attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea. The Federal Agricultural Department says it's now directed the ship to bring the animals back to Australia. The department says there are no other live export vessels currently at sea bound for or aiming to transit through the Red Sea. And still in WA, more than 1,000 homes and businesses in WA's central wheat belt farming region remain without power five days after severe storms caused widespread outages. Farmers near Corrigan, Wagen, Wongan Hills, Muckenbuden and Bencubbin still have no estimated power restoration time. State government electricity provider Western Power reconnected hundreds of properties in the Perth Hills late last night and say crews are working as quickly as possible. Coolan farmer John Waters remains without power after the storm blew over trees, fences and sheds at his property on Wednesday. He arrived home half an hour after the front passed through. When we drove in our driveway, there was just carnage, trees everywhere and we couldn't actually get in the driveway. We had to shift trees to get in the driveway. And over to Tasmania now, where an Australian of the Year nominee is facing questions over an abattoir she once co-owned after it was targeted by animal activists. Alexander Alvro reports. In early December, Vision was released showing workers at the local meat co abattoir roughly handling animals, including throwing and punching sheep. An expert familiar with abattoirs told the ABC they had concerns about the facility's design and equipment. Australian of the Year nominee Stephanie Trithui initially said she was a minority shareholder in the business, but according to ASIC records, she co-owned the abattoir with her husband until animal welfare issues were raised. She says she never had any operational involvement with the facility and she removed herself as an owner to reflect that. Let's head to the top end now, where residents in two remote Northern Territory communities last week were evacuated due to the upper Victoria River flooding. At Gilnocky Station, south of Catherine, they're facing conditions they haven't seen since the mid-80s. Station owner John Armstrong says they'll be cut off for weeks and possibly months. We certainly can't drive anywhere and the creeks are slowly coming up there may even reach uh, record heights here, I don't know, but it's got a fair way to go before that happens. Yeah, the creek, probably another um, another three, only another metre and a half above where it is now, but it'll be, at that stage, it'll be um, a kilometre and a half wide going down going down this uh, these floodplains here, yeah. Probably only half a dozen times since I've been here, since, um, you know, since 1985 have we had, like in the last 40 years, have we had floods that high? You know, we'd like to be trucking cattle out in April, but um, the way this weather is, and it may well be the end of May or June before we can put heavy trucks on our road. And Australia's oldest and biggest cotton ginning company is set to be transferred into international hands. Last week, Namoy Cotton, 
announced it had entered into an agreement with Singapore-based Louis Dreyfus Company. Namoi Cotton Chief Executive Tim Watson says the arrangement will see Louis Dreyfus take on the remaining 83% of shares in Namoi Cotton it does not yet own. But there are regulatory hurdles to jump before, before putting the proposal to shareholders. So the next step is there is a ACCC submission, there's a FERB submission, so the Foreign Investment Review Board. Whilst you never know, you can't predict that, we don't expect any uh, major hurdles there. From the Namoi side, we've got to get an independent expert. Uh, We then go to the court. If the judge says that they're all happy, will give us the um, go-ahead to proceed to a shareholder meeting. Anticipate that to be in uh, April, May. And finally, Fiona, you might remember this time last year, Australia was in a hot chip shortage due to rain damage in multiple states. Well, this year, crisping chip farmers have also had issues, as South Australian spud grower Terry Buckley explains. So we've, we've had trouble since. Crisping industries had a few challenges where it just scraped through, but it did scrape through. They had to use varieties they wouldn't normally use, and they had to transport from Atherton to, to Adelaide, which is an enormous freight bill, but they were able to get through. So we haven't had anything that we weren't able to cope with up till now. And this year seems very mild, and I'm expecting there will be probably some very good yields. So Fiona looks like a bowl of hot chips will still be on the menu. And that's Rural News for this Monday. Thanks, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. And I'm very glad to hear that the potatoes are okay. I actually don't think that I could live without potatoes. It is 26 minutes to one o'clock here on the country hour. Still to come, we'll check in uh, on some record results for uh, producers at International Dairy Week last week. We'll also check in to see how hay production uh, has been going across the state. We'll cross to the Bureau of Meteorology in just a moment. If you do have any questions for the Bureau, let me know. 0467842722. We've got Stephanie Miles from the Bureau of Meteorology on the line now. G'day, Stephanie. Hi, Fiona. How are you going? Very well, thanks. Um, what's the weather looking like over the next few days? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I guess we'll start with today. At the moment, we've got some really cloudy conditions over the south of the state. A lot of sunshine in the north, which is lovely for those people out there, but we do have some relatively settled conditions. Perhaps a couple of showers or two over Gippsland itself, but our maximum temperatures today staying quite cool in the south, anywhere in the low 20s, and a little bit higher in the northern parts. Those places along the border in New South Wales up to about the low 30s or so. So, Look, a bit of a settled day today, and we're going to be continuing with those conditions tomorrow. Our winds will start to turn northerly, which will mean our temperature will start to drive upwards and increase. However, we will get a mostly sunny day tomorrow on Tuesday. And that is ahead of uh, a bit of a trough that's going to deepen on our western border and in the southern parts too on Wednesday morning. So we will have a bit of shower activity increasing on Wednesday and a couple of thunderstorms as well. Mostly over pretty much the whole of the state, but concentrating kind of on and north of the ranges on Wednesday. But our temperatures are staying quite warm on the Wednesday as well. We've got temperatures up to about the low to mid-40s in the very northern parts, Mildura itself getting up to 44 degrees. I think we've got on our record that the hottest that Mildura's ever gotten is 46 degrees uh, you know, in 1990 up there. So some pretty warm temperatures. 
And with those warm temperatures, we're also expecting those fire danger ratings to be increasing as well. So please be aware of those ones in the northwestern parts of the state. On Thursday, we'll start to be a little less um, hot on the Thursday. However, those showers and thunderstorm activity will continue as well. But by Friday, we have a nice big ridge starting to move into the state. So those thunderstorms and shower activity will start to ease and move eastwards. And we'll have some cooler conditions come through on Friday. So anywhere between the low to high 20s on Friday and then by the weekend, we've got settled conditions continuing with that ridge over us. So... Look, Fiona, today and tomorrow, relatively settled. We've got some showers activity on the Wednesday and Thursday and then settled once again into the weekend. Okay, so a bit of rain there. Do you have any uh, details on how much rain might be expected um, in any areas that should look out for it? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the rainfall figures on the Wednesday in particular, actually maybe I'll just start from today and tomorrow. We're not expecting anything over a couple of mil or so. But by Wednesday when that shower activity really starts to increase, Anywhere between two to five millimetres, I think, is quite possible anywhere on and actually around the state, really, those totals. Perhaps a little bit higher, around five to ten millimetres in the northern slopes in those northeastern parts. Very similar once again on Thursday, only expecting around one to five millimetres north and on and north of the ranges and perhaps a little bit more in those northeastern districts too. By Friday, mostly, you know, less than five mils or so that's going to be contracting eastwards. There will be a couple of showers on the south of the ranges continuing, but... Yeah, look, after Friday, we've got, you know, not much rainfall at all expected, Fiona. And some hot days coming up. Uh, are there any warnings or any advice for um, people in those areas that are really going to hit those high temperatures? Well, we do have a bit of a low-intensity heat wave actually reaching those northern parts of the state, so right across the northern parts of us and into New South Wales. So, I mean, please just be aware of those temperatures. Those nighttime temperatures might not be dropping down all that much. They're not providing all that much relief overnight. So... Stay cool as best as you can, I guess, is the advice that I can give you. But otherwise, just start today also with those warnings from the Department of Health in any of those heatwave conditions. Any other warnings around for the state, Stephanie? Not much at the moment, other than the fire danger ratings in the northwest. Please be aware of those ones. And then a couple of perhaps some stronger winds along the south throughout the week uh, as the trough kind of moves through on Wednesday, but not at the moment. Thanks, Fiona. And so warm days through the week, will they carry through to the public holiday on Friday? I guess people will be keen for some from good weather there. Yeah, look, by Friday we'll have more settled and cooler conditions. So, I mean, around the state in the southern parts, anywhere between, you know, 20 to 25 degrees, a little bit warmer in the north, but definitely starting to cool off from the Friday and, you know, being relatively mild into the weekend, the long weekend. And we are talking about uh, hobbies and, and people who are passionate about their work. Some people's work is really their passion. Do you have any passions outside of work or are you really focused on meteorology? <laughs> I mean, I've got a couple of different hobbies, but I always find that even when I'm not at work, I'm looking at the sky and figuring out what's happening with the clouds. So maybe I've still got a hobby outside of work with the weather. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time there, Stephanie. Have a good day, Fiona. Thanks so much. Cheers. Stephanie Miles there from the Bureau of Meteorology just coming up to 20 minutes to one o'clock here on the Country Hour. Another text just coming in here regarding the VFF. 
a, a recent press release um, regarding the Goshen mine. Uh, there's no name on this text either. It says Emma was quoted as saying running public consultation in a farming district over the harvest season is tone deaf and arrogant. So she was talking about a mining company but should be looking closer to home. Um, there's no true consultation at the VFF anymore. And this person says, P.S. I'm in my 30s, not a dinosaur. Let's take a look now. We were just talking about the weather, what we can expect across the week in Victoria and the wet weather across the state and also southern New South Wales has made hay production a challenge this summer season. Colin Peace is a Victorian-based hay analyst with Jumbuck Ag. He says the unprecedented weather conditions have disrupted the hay market and demand for certain types of hay has plummeted. But he says the persistent rain will likely result in a lower quality product for farmers and buyers in the southern states. It has been exceptionally wet. I think the um, rainfall figures for particularly December have been two and a half times typical monthly rainfall figures. And already there are many parts of Victoria and southern New South Wales that have had two and a half times their total January rainfall in the first half of the month. So it is quite unprecedented. Green throughout a state which is normally very much uh, browned off in January. Clearly, a lot of green grass pasture growth is, uh, is prolific and, um, and hay demand has, uh, has plummeted. Have you got any figures to demonstrate that? It's all anecdotal, this type of material, but speaking to hay farmers, they're saying that uh, normally they would get um, some orders at this time of the year for hay and um, the, the inquiry, particularly for loads going north to New South Wales and Queensland, those, those inquiries have just plummeted since the rain started in November. Having said that, you know, the deliveries of uh, vetch hay and loosen hay both north and south are continuing, but the, the demand for roughage hay, like oat and hay and pasture hay, that's the, that's the hay that's really feeling the pinch now that um, there are, you know, prolific volumes of, uh, of pasture growth everywhere. So, Colin, have you seen a season like this before? There's been wet years, obviously, and, you know, everyone's making big comparisons between this year and last, which is the, the first thing that comes to mind. But, um, of course, the, the big big wet last year came a month earlier and finished a month earlier. So it's uh, what we've got here is uh, is extraordinary. I mean, there's been big wet years in the past, obviously. Um, early 20, 2011 was a, was a very wet year as well. It's incredible to see this sort of thing stretching out as it is, and it's you know there's still forecasts for more rain throughout, uh, particularly eastern Victoria and southern New South Wales, you know during the week. So it's it's not exactly not exactly over and done with yet. Speaking of forecasts, we've been hearing a lot from farmers across the state uh, airing their frustrations about. The Bureau of Meteorology's forecast, both for El Nino, you know, people were preparing for a dry summer period and also uh, just some commentary around the Weather Bureau not being able to accurately forecast for the week ahead. Have you been hearing those frustrations as well? I think there are um, 
problems with the way information is interpreted. It's not a binary position. You know, it's not wet or dry. There's always probabilities based around whether it's, it is an imperfect science. Um, I think that's fairly obvious, um, but it's, it's something that um, cannot be taken too literally. And depending on who you speak to, there would be farmers out there this year who were incredibly grateful that the Bureau was forecasting El Nino as early as mid-March last year, and they've taken steps to um, get ready for that and prepare for it. But um, it's something that um, is highly complex, but probability-based, and um, if it's a 70% chance of El Nino, which it was, there's um, a third chance that it's going to be fine, which proved to be the case. So it's complicated. It's early in the year. All the markets and commodities are starting to rev back up. So what are your predictions for 2024 for the hay market? There'll be some caveats that will come with my response, but certainly from this perspective of the year with the rains that we've had and the, the grass that's there, Everyone is flush with standing feed. Summer crops of the brassicas and other crops in south of the divide will be um, will be going ballistic, particularly with the humidity that we've got at the moment. From here, the next major price direction is going to come from the timing of the autumn break, which is is the classic thing that will determine hay prices, how steep they might go and uh, where things might go in winter. But um, you'd have to say that there would be ample hay stocks currently to get most livestock producers through the year unless there's something really radical that's going to upset supply and demand. But uh, it's pretty hard to see it from here. But um, certainly the hay export sector is underpinning the prices and demand at the moment. They'll be keen to buy any quality hay that's out there. But uh, the weather, how cold it's going to be in winter, that, that'll be the next, uh, the next step price direction after the, um, the timing of the autumn break. I've spoken to some farmers who have said that they've been in the hay contracting business for around 40 to 50 years uh, in the Gippsland region. And they haven't actually been able to get enough dry days to be able to, to get on a paddock. Have you been hearing things like that too? Um, very similar results to that as well. Um, you know, I think if you could you could replicate that in the western part of the state where the farmers have been trying to harvest their, their grain crops, for instance. And yes, they're normally later in south of the divide, but they've... Um, up until the start of January, they'd had um, 15 clear days out of the last 50 to do their harvesting. So um, that would, of course, be, you know, playing havoc with hay and silage contracting as well. And, uh, of course, when you've had so much rain as we have, you've also got the time you need to wait until the the, uh, the tractors can actually um, have enough stability on the land to get across the country and, and do field work. So, yeah, it's a, it's going to mean that there's going to be some pretty rank quality silage and hay waiting for them by the time they get there. I assume at this time of year it's going to be primarily hay. So um, that is going to be a problem for um, for the dairy farmers, particularly trying to produce high-volume milk on a, on a pretty pretty low-quality diet. Colin Peace there, hay analyst with Jumbuck Ag, speaking with Jane McNaughton. 
And feed costs and feed quality were certainly part of conversations at last week's International Dairy Week in Tatura. And while it was a jam-packed event, the sale was a highlight for many. It was quite a night for Tallygarupna's Cherry Lock Cattle Company team, whose top Holstein fetched $36,000. And Cherry Lock Cattle owner Brad Govanlocks told me there's growing interest in dairy genomics, which is driving sales. She's probably the best young Holstein cow we've ever owned, to be honest. And yeah, it wasn't an easy decision to let her go, but um, definitely got rewarded for it, that's for sure. Now, is she the one who took out $36,000? Correct. And yeah, is that right. is that uh, a record for you, for your company? It is, yeah. yeah that's the highest, highest we've ever sold an animal for. Uh, and you also took out some other awards, uh, awards I understand, across um, Jersey and some other categories, so a pretty successful week for you? Yeah, definitely. It was, uh, it was the most uh, successful week we've ever had at Gary Week, that's for sure. And you know, we've been shown here over 20 years, but um, it, was, uh, it was definitely a big, big week for us across multiple breeds. Yeah, so we were fortunate enough. We took out we took out intermediate Holstein um, with a, a two year old cow that went on to win Supreme All Breeds, and then we also got Grand Champion Jersey. Um, and yeah, it was it was nice that um, we also got Reserve Supreme Jersey that we didn't own, but we had bred and sold through one of our sales. And it was nice that one of my one of my good mates and neighbour um, had the success with her. And what does it mean to take out some of these titles at International Dairy Week? Oh, it's we're a funny mob, us guys that show cows, and and we're you know essentially ninety percent of them are, are are just regular dairy farmers that aren't good at golf, so this is their hobby. Um, it's a you know, it's a it's a hobby, it's an interest, and for a lot of us, like for us, it's an actual business. So it's a big cross section of why why people do it. Um, what drives us to do it? It, it is our business. Um, we don't get a milk check. We we do a lot of management cattle and dry cattle and manage cattle for people for embryos and that sort of stuff so you know we we need to sell cows and we need to sell good ones that uh to keep the business rolling is there growing interest in um the genomics and the the breeding of dairy cows yeah i think there is in the last you know there was a little lull period there and i don't think our little um covid holiday probably didn't help that mm. um and i just think the uh i think the rebound the numbers at dairy week and i can't quite quote the exact number but the sale uh here at dairy week averaged over eleven thousand dollars that was all young dry stock I, other than v the cow we sold there might have been one or two other milkers but the majority are all young stocks so at average eleven thousand dollars i think it just proves the uh the interest there and that was a cross-section most of that sale weren't you know okay yes we're at dairy week we're at a show but you know there was a lot of high end genomic there potential bull mothers and and you know you know, cow family foundation, cow family starters there at um, that were a part of that sale. So, a real cross section of the industry that um, supported supported the sale on Wednesday night. And what actually goes into prepping your award winning cows? A lot of work, particularly and a lot of headaches in the past few weeks. It's been pretty brutal in the past few weeks, as as everyone's well aware. To keep cows uh, in full production and and flying, it, it takes a lot of work, and it, it's a lot of it's more. It's more nutrition. Um, mm. um, hay quality is, is, is the biggest secret, that's for sure. You know, this year that was made a little bit easier with, with some high-quality hay made. Last year with, with the floods in October made it very difficult. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a, you know, we, we brought 41 head to the show and from our own 
on cattle and, and a lot of our a lot of our clients. And yeah, it was tough the last few weeks with the weather, but uh, it was great to get here and catch up with all our friends and, and people within the industry that are passionate about the same job that we are. Tally Garupna's award-winning breeder, Brad Govanlock, speaking there. And, yeah, as you just heard, the weather causing some problems for exhibitors. One of those exhibitors was Swiss Brown stud breeder Ben Govett from Dingy. He says it's been a tough start to the year. Prior to coming to the show, we were dealing with floods um, just before leaving. Um, and then, yeah, we've been here since uh, Wednesday, basically, last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And so how are you coping um, with the clean-up back home and then coming here, juggling all of that? Uh, yeah, well, it'll all be waiting there for when I get home. There'll still be waterline around, I assume. Um, and, yeah, we'll just have to deal with that when I get home, mm-hmm. the aftermath. And how many mills did you end up getting? Uh, so probably we had, I think, 220 mills in about 12 days, mm-hmm. starting from Christmas Day. And usually you only get, you don't usually get anything over 50 mil, is that right? Yeah, so more than a two-inch rainfall event over a week's probably a lot for us. We only average about 250, 300 mils for a year, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was a lot of rain all at one time. Mm-hmm. And um, how did that kind of impact your prep for International Dairy Week here in Tatura? Yeah, well, probably time we should have been spent getting ready, packing and uh, getting stuff shifted. We were, uh, yeah, fighting to keep the floodwaters in the sort of the flood area rather than affecting the the main part of the farm where the uh, milking herds kept um so yeah we probably lost two days of of time that we'd spend mostly on on dairy week to uh to yeah just shifting stock and um you know making preparations for the flood water to come and um we've had a a bunch of shows already so yeah how's it going for you in the show ring yep so uh we started with the browns fish show yesterday we had a pretty good day we were um yeah had reserve junior champion um and intermediate and reserve intermediate uh champion um a number of other class winners and we had uh premier breeder and exhibitor of both the open and the junior show helping with the jersey string of brook borer where they were premier breeder and exhibitor as well and had numerous class winners. Yeah, so yeah. taking out all the a lot of the top awards anyway. Yes. Yep. And you were named um, top breeder and exhibitor at last year's Dairy Week event. So, um, yeah, how does that feel to keep that going? Yeah, it's something we've, we've done for a number of years now and just uh, it's good to continue it on. That's dinghy dairy farmer Ben Govett speaking there with Faith Tabaluyan. Time to go to the markets now. We've got Pakenham Cattle with Nicole Farley today. G'day, Nicole. Good afternoon, Fiona. Well, we had a larger offering here at Pakenham, even with the shorter working week. Producers were rewarded as cattle prices lifted across all grades of stock. There was a large gallery of buyers, some excellent lines of heavy black bullocks meant very strong competition as prices there rose 10 cents a kilo, cows jumped 10 to 18 cents, and the young cattle gained momentum to be 20 to 30 cents dearer. Medium and heavy B-muscled veal has ranged from 280 to 345 cents, to average around 330. Yearling steers to the trade made from 280 to 330 to average 321. 
The restockers and feedlotters were actively sourcing lines which helped fuel the increased prices. Yelling heifers made from 260 to 324 to average around 286 cents to the trade. There were several pens of heavy Frisian bullocks with cover that made 240 to a top of 284 cents. The processor steers 500 to 600 kilo C3 C4s, 280 to 305, while store buyers paid to 318 to put on feed. The heavy dairy cows 202 to 248 cents, averaging around 241 for the more dried off and better covered types. This is Nicole Varley from Pakenham. Thanks, Nicole. Let's head to Wagga Cattle now with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Feedlots took centre stage in a slightly bigger yarding of 4,425. The overall quality of stock was fair and the majority was more suited to feedlots or restocking. Domestic buyers aiming to secure cattle under 500 kilos faced struggles trying to match feedlot prices. There were strong gains, particularly for feeder steers, which lifted 10 to 20 cents. Medium weight feeder steers sold from $3 to $3.67, while the lighter weights, $3.30 to $400 kilo, topped at $3.70. Lightweight steers destined for the paddock sold to 400 cents and averaged $1,013. Trade heifers were in demand, fetching from 255 to 298. Feeder heifers prices saw an upswing of 10 to 25 cents, selling at 290 to 329. In the export market, heavy steers destined for processors maintained their prices, selling at 278 to 310. Bullocks lifted 7 cents, 276 to 317. In the cow market, Buyers were keen and prices lifted nine cents. Leanne Dux, MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Let's head now to Bendigo Lambs with Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Buyers came into this sale anticipating an easier price run on lambs, but they couldn't hold the market and it gained momentum, particularly late in the auction. The sweet spot in the sale was 26 to 30 kilo carcass weight lambs with well-finished crossbreds from $190 to $226 as they finished $10 to $20 dearer at an average cost of $750 after some pens ended up around 8 bucks towards the end of the sale. But the rest of the market did fluctuate. There was just 12,260 lambs, 6,000 less, and quality was more mixed this week with good trade lambs very limited. The heaviest export lambs, 212 to a top of 255, to still track at 700 to 720 cents averages. Any neat trades were around $6 dearer at 158 to 168, but plainer types either side of last week. It meant there was a fair price spread of six fifty to seven fifty cents over a lot of lambs. Some of the light MK style lambs were a lot dearer at hundred to hundred and thirty. Light and trade mutton was dearer, averages of two seventy to three hundred and thirty cents a kilo over good sheep. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks, Jenny. And finally Mortlake Cattle with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Fiona. Agents yarded twenty two hundred head of cattle at Mortlake, an increase of one sixty one this week. Most of the cattle on offer displayed good quality overall with the exception of the trade cattle of which the majority lacked finish of last week. The grown cattle and bullocks showed good weight with this week with a few more uh, dairy bred manufacturing steers available. Most of the normal processors were active in a very strong market to be fully firm to slightly dearer over most categories. However bulls slipped 20 cents and the dairy cows were 20 cents stronger in places. 
This week's offering of veal is made between 260 to 312. Trade steers and heifers making between 255 to 305. And the grown cattle topped at 316 cents. Manufacturing steers sold up to 284. The heavy beef cows making between 230 and 276 with the medium weights between 200 and 230 cents. Dairy cows generally making between 195 and 245. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. And that's almost it for the Country Hour today. You can catch up on episodes on the ABC Listen app or you can find more rural news online abc.net.au forward slash rural. I'm Fiona Broom. It's one o'clock.